matchless name of Christ Jesus, through whom we can come before your throne of grace, to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. And Lord, we ask you today that you would bless us as we receive the word of God. Open up our eyes, open up our hearts, open up our ears. I pray that your Holy Spirit, God, would come and implant the truth of the word deep in the good soil of our hearts. I pray for Pastor Scott as he's dealing with pain. I pray that you would relieve that for him. Grant him comfort in this time. And I pray that it would pass quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 3, Psalm chapter 3, um, I really encourage you to go through the book of Psalms. I've been really, I hate to say stuck, but I've been in the book of Psalms really since the beginning of this year, going through it very slowly, rereading it, going back and rereading it. Such a powerful book, and it spans so much time in Israel's history. The oldest one is likely Psalm 90. It was the Psalm of Moses as he crosses the Red Sea and he sees the armies of Egypt get swallowed up by the waters. The latest one is probably Psalm 137. It was a lament for the people who were in captivity in Babylon. We're talking a long period of time of Israel's history. And I love the Psalms because it's brutally honest, isn't it? I mean, nothing is hidden away. Nothing is tucked away. We don't want, we don't, it encourages us to express our deep feelings and what we're going through to God. No matter how negative it might seem to the world around us, it encourages us to bring all of them to God and not just to bring them to God, but to know that God hears us when we do this. And that's what we're going to look at today. And you know, in a couple of months, I'll be going on 19 years of pastoral ministry. I can't believe that much time has gone by. And every time I've been given an opportunity to preach, whether it's a teaching pastor down south or preaching up in Virginia or even here, I've never been able by God to give you a sermon that was good for thee and not for me. And I was contemplating this passage that the Lord really laid upon my heart to give today. And I prayed to the Lord, I said, you do this to me every time. You give me a passage that's really about me, and I stand up here and I preach, and I'm wondering if this is resonating with what anyone else is going through. But let me ask you to that end. Are you troubled? Are you going through troubled circumstances? Are you in that tunnel and you're looking for the light at the end of the tunnel? Perhaps you've not seen that light and you've stopped looking for that light. And you're just sick of being in the tunnel. Have, are, are you facing a situation where you are just weary in the core of your very being, in your soul, and it hurts? If that's for you, if that is you, this passage was written for you. If it's not you, well, good on you. But you better pay attention because it's coming. The Bible tells us that all of these stories that we read, these narrative passages, are given for our instruction. And what we'll see today is David going through not just an inconvenient circumstance in his life, but something that troubled him to the core of his being. Difficulty, troubling circumstances like you and I probably will never face. But yet in this passage, it provides us with certain disciplines to gain peace 
in the troubling times. Not a checklist of things to do, and if I just do these things, and God will give me some peace. That's not how God operates. These are disciplines that we can cultivate in our life. And as we begin to cultivate them, that's how God will begin to allow us to experience peace and even joy in these very difficult and troubling circumstances in life. Well, let's look right to Psalms chapter 3. We're going to start not with verse 1. We're going to start with the superscription. You'll see those little headings. Those are called superscriptions. If you were reading from the Hebrew text today, that superscription would actually be verse 1. We don't necessarily think those are inspired, but they do provide us with a bit of context about what we're about to read. You'll see them all throughout the Psalms. Some don't have them at all, but many of them do. They'll sometimes give some historical context. Other times they'll just tell how it is to be sung. It is to the choir director with stringed instruments or to be sung to this tune or that song. But this one gives us some very powerful instructions, which leads us really to understanding verse 1 properly. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Can you imagine having to flee from your own child? Your own son. This is what David is walking through here in this moment in time. He led this rebellion. But let me provide you a little bit of context. This whole rebellion thing from Absalom. You can read that on your own. But it comes from 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 17. And this all happens because of, of David's sin. David committing adultery with Bathsheba. The prophet, prophet Nathan comes and says that. God will raise evil against David out of his own house as consequence of his sin. So who is Absalom? Absalom was David's third son. David's second son, his name was Chiliab, but he's never mentioned at all after his birth. So most scholars think he probably died early on. David's firstborn son was Amnon. And the story of how Amnon died is a pretty sordid tale. Amnon fell in love and ended up raping Absalom's half-sister, Tamar. And then in revenge, Absalom slaughters Amnon. He gathers all the sons of David together to have a little powwow, which was not unusual. In the middle of that, he slaughters Amnon in front of everyone. Of course, that would raise the ire of any king or any father. And he is exiled from the city of Jerusalem for a number of years. But then he ends up coming back to Jerusalem. He's allowed back. But the king refuses to see him. Doesn't want really to even look at Absalom right now. It's still raw and fresh what he's going through. And so Absalom begins to be resentful. Well, let's face it. He's next in line to the king, right? The firstborn or the secondborn son is likely dead. The first one is, is been murdered. You're the third one. You're next in line. And he's probably looking, when is this old guy going to die so I can take the throne? So here's what he does. He determines that he's going to steal the kingdom away from his own father. He would stand on the road and he, man, he did this. He was slick. He'd stand on the road near the palace and he'd watch influential people coming in because they had an issue that they needed the king or the king's representative to judge and determine uh, what's fair, what's equitable, what's right, they had a dispute or whatnot. And he would stand right by the gate and he'd kind of stop them and say, hey, why are you here? And they would come and tell Absalom what they wanted the representative of the king to hear. 
And Absalom would say, oh, yeah, that's a tough one. You sound like you have some grounds for a good ruling in your favor. Oh, but there's no representative here to meet you. The king won't hear you. Uh, you've got a really good case. And man, if there were someone here that could help you, man, you go on your way being happy. Man, if I were king, this is what I would do. He would do this year after year, winning the hearts of the people. There are a lot of Absaloms in this world. Perhaps you might know an Absalom in your life. Maybe someone that was openly antagonistic against you. Then all of a sudden they drop that. And then they get very sweet with people all around you. And you're like, what is that person up to? This is what's going on to King David. Year after year, he ends up gathering the favor of thousands of people in Israel. He proclaims himself to be king. And he executes a coup against his father. That's where we pick up this story. It's not the story of just any son overthrowing a father. Absalom is trying to overthrow, let's, let's listen to this, the anointed one of God. Absalom was not anointed king by a prophet. David was. He was trying to overthrow the anointed one of God through whom God had promised to bless the world. And we'll see that in just a few moments. But in the midst of this troubling circumstances, this anguish that David is facing, a messenger comes up to him and says, Absalom's on the way. you got to get out of here. David hears this. He gathers up the remaining people who are loyal to them, and he flees the palace, and he's on the run because Absalom and his band of merry men are trying to execute him and assassinate him. Troubling, wouldn't you say? Not only troubling because you're in danger of losing your power and your throne, it's troubling because it's your son, the one that you love. Well, what does he do with this? Well, this is the first discipline that we need to, to develop in our life. And that's that we need to cry out to God in the day of trouble. Let's look at verse 1. David says, O oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him. In God, Selah. We're not sure what Selah means. It could mean like pause to reflect. It could be a musical notation. We're not really sure. I just love this because it made outlining this passage a lot easier for me. And that's where we're staying with this now. This is what's going on. They are saying, David, there's no help for you in God. And David is crying out to the Lord with that. Now, you might understand why the people would say that or why David actually might be tempted to think that. I mean, if you're running from your throne, you're running from your son, you're at night hiding, you're hiding in wells, you're hiding in caves. When you're the king, you might be tempted to think yeah, it looks like God has left me. Well, let's face it. This was due to David's sin. He covered up the murder of Uriah in order to commit adultery with Bathsheba. So maybe they're saying God has left you, David, because of what you did back then. They might have some grounds to say, hmm, maybe he's right. Maybe they're right. Maybe God left him because he's lost face with the people. Now, 
most of us, we don't experience this sort of circumstance. At least I'm not a king. I can't speak for you. Perhaps you are in your own little, little realm. <laughs> I don't have a son who's chasing me off my throne. But I do think that many of us, perhaps more than we'd like to admit at first conversation, are familiar with people saying, there's no deliverance for you in God. Because there's someone who probably knows you better than anyone else. People who would often say to you, you're not good enough for God to love you. You're not good enough to be a Christian. In other words, there's no salvation for you in God. Who might this person be? You might think of someone in your mind. Other people may be thinking, I don't really have someone that, that's like that in my life. Maybe that someone is you. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been your worst critic? Our doubts, our self-accusations are often the most powerful things that confront our own souls. I can deal when people criticize me. Happens a lot. <laughs> I can deal with that. People will say something critical. Okay, whatever, I'll deal with it. Sometimes it hurts, depends on who it is. But most of the time, I just let it roll off of me. It doesn't bother me that much. But I know the soft spots in my own faith. I know what I struggle with, that when those little soft spots in my faith are pushed on, even just a little bit there, those are the circumstances, those are the issues that I have to deal with. Will God deliver me from this? If you're in troubled times, difficult circumstances, this temptation towards self-accusation probably becomes more real, doesn't it? I'm stuck in this place. I hate where I am. This circumstance, that person, this thing, I can't break out of this. Maybe God has left me. Maybe God doesn't want anything to do with me after all. Maybe I blew it and you go in your mind this catalog of sins that you've committed in your mind. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was all of the above. Can God actually deliver me? Has God even saved me? Am I even a Christian? I think that all of us can resonate on this point at some level. Whether it's someone who's against us or whether it's just us who's against us. But the point is that David tells God the trouble and he gets specific. He cries out to the Lord and tells the Lord what his enemies are doing. And he tells the Lord what his enemies were saying. Do we do that? Or we just stew on these accusations and negative feelings? Or do we perhaps accuse God instead of bringing them to him? Oh, God, you've left me, clearly. This isn't fair. Obviously, I've done something to make you mad, God. Do we take the circumstances to the Lord? See, when we fail to do that, what we're saying is, I don't trust God to work these things out. There's still a part of you somewhere in your heart that says, I can fix this. If I look hard enough, I'll find the end of the tunnel, the light at the end of the tunnel, and I'll just follow that. I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'll work harder. I'll work more. I'll do whatever. You just fill in the blank, whatever it is. And we fail to pray, God, I have nothing anymore. I've done everything right. I've done everything I was supposed to do. And yet here I am, and my soul is at the point where it just hurts. Here's what's going on, Lord. Here's my self-accusations. I am saying to myself, you've left me, God. 
confess that before God, cry out to him. And it sounds like such a, uh, such a small and simple thing, but if you don't learn to cry out to the Lord with specificity, you'll never get to the other disciplines that are going on here in this passage. This is where he starts this out. Many have risen up against me. He says many several times. Many are saying of my soul, there is no help for him and God. And I want to just, for emphasis, just to really cut through that little, you know, like go behind the veil a little bit and say what they're really saying here. I mean, neither Absalom nor his henchmen are even concerned about the fact that David is the Lord's anointed. They don't care. In fact, they think that their attempt to overthrow David will not be thwarted by God's anointing of David. Or the fact that God made promises to David, it doesn't matter. And isn't that what we do with ourselves? When we self-accuse ourselves, we have these doubts. What we're in essence is saying, God, you can't make good on your promises given to me in the gospel. You left me. You can't help me here. I and my sin or whatever it is that you can fill in the blank with is stronger than you. That's what Absalom was saying. Confess those things. Get rid of them right away. Call them out before the Lord. Sometimes if you do it out loud, you can hear the foolishness of, of what it is and what it says. You know, in our hearts, in our minds, we stew on these things and they get bigger and they get more exaggerated over time. And if you just uttered them out loud in a prayer to God, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm saying. This is what's going on around me. You might end up chuckling a little bit at how foolish it really sounds in the end. David knew who he was. He knew he was the Lord's anointed. So I don't think at this point he's crying out to the Lord because he's starting to believe it. Although maybe there was, he's a man just like, like us. I mean, he's just a person. He's by fighting some of those feelings. But in the end, he knew that God was the one who would take care of him, which kind of leads us to this next discipline. So not only do we cry out to the Lord in the day of trouble, but we have to trust in the promises of God. So you cry out and then you trust. Let's look at verse 3 and 4. And we're going to spend a little more time here. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice. And he answered me from his holy mountain. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me roundabout. Let's stop there. He's trusting in the promises of God. You say, how? The first thing that he says is that you, God, are a shield about me. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, God, your shield, he'll defend you. No, no, no. David is doing something far greater than just saying, God, you're going to defend me. God is calling upon the promise that he made to Abraham. Genesis 15 and verse 1, after Abraham had rescued his nephew Lot and his family, after defeating kings, believe it or not, after the battle near Sodom and Gomorrah, he comes back from it all and God shows up and says, don't be afraid, Abram, I am your shield. And so here in this passage, David is calling upon what God said to Abram. And you say, well, how in the world could David do that? How would he call upon a promise that God made to Abram? It comes back to the promise that God made to David. Let's look for a moment at, at 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
2 Samuel chapter 7, this is where we, we have the Davidic covenant. It's a special covenant, a promise that God made to David. Now, David was, he was at rest. God gave him victory against all of his enemies. And he was kind of walking around this really ornate and beautiful palace that he was living in. And he thought, here I am in this beautiful house and God still lives in a tent. That something's not right here, David said. You know, he loved the Lord so much. He's like, it doesn't seem fair that I'm in this beautiful place, cedar walls and all this ornate stuff and vestments that kings had. And, and yet God lives in some canvas and animal skins. Doesn't seem right. I want to build a temple and a house that's glorious and beautiful and worthy of the majesty of God. And the prophet Nathan says, well, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Whatever God tells you to do, you just do it. And then finally God came to Nathan and said, no, you got to tell him, I don't want you to build this temple. It's not for you to build. I didn't ask for a temple to be built for me. You're not the one to do it. But here's what I'm going to do. And so I want you to look at verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to being ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and cut off your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name. Where have you heard that before? The covenant God made with Abraham, didn't he? Make your name great. Like the names of the great men who are on the earth, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. One of the things that were the promises God made to Abraham, God would give Israel a land. Not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Here's the key. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your singular here, don't look at it as plural, descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. I will be a father to him and he will be what? A son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me. For how long? Forever. Your throne shall be established. For how long? Forever. Who is the descendant that God is promising in this passage? Jesus. It wasn't Solomon. And Solomon started out really great, but man, he, life became a train wreck toward the end. It wasn't Solomon. The whole empire, the whole kingdom of Israel was ripped apart because of the things that Solomon had started to do toward the end of his life. He's referring to Christ Jesus. That's the one coming from David who would establish his kingdom and his throne forever and ever. What did God promise Abram? That one is coming from you who will bless all the families of the earth. So when David says, God, you are my shield, he's remembering that the promises that God gave Abram extended to himself. And that's confidence. Because God does not go back on his promises. He's like, oh, wait a minute, what does that have to do with me? Hang on. We're going to get there. I know you're excited. Just hang on just a second. He says, you're my shield. 
What else does he say? You are my glory. Anybody see the coronation of the king yesterday? Some people like to do that. I, I'm on Twitter, and Twitter is such an evil and wonderful place at the same time. <laughs> the, the fights that pastors get into on Twitter, it's like the eyebrows go up. I'm like, what is happening here? But it's so interesting watching people talk about the coronation of King Charles out in England. King that has no authority here. We haven't had a king since our inception of our country, and yet we're glued to watch what's happening over in England. Why? People talked about it. Man, it's just so ornate. It's so beautiful. What is the glory of a king? Just look at the coronation. You have the, the vestments and the robes. And King Charles at one point had a scepter in one hand. He had an orb in another. And then another time he had two scepters in his hand. He had this massive crown on his head. A train that goes all the way back. People all around him. They're having this liturgy that, that just screams beauty and majesty. A king would say, my glory is this. King David had those things. He had a beautiful palace. He had royal vestments. He had a scepter. He had a crown. He had the money. He was probably seeing more money at that point in his life than he ever had. He had rest from his enemies all around him. He could have said, this is my glory. Instead, he said, you, God, are my glory. What does that have to do with me? Glad you asked. Whatever we do in word or in deed, we do for the glory of God. In him we live and move and have our being. He is the glory. It's what he was crying out. You're my glory. And then he says, you're, you're the one who lifts my head. Some of your translations might say the lifter of my head. I like that too. He didn't say that it was a sunny disposition that lifted his head. Or the power of positive thinking. He cultivated the habits of highly successful people. Or that he had peace with himself inside. No, he said, you are the lifter of my head. And I love that. So how do people, what do people how do you know when someone's depressed? How, do you, how can you say you're depressed without actually saying you're depressed? He's slouched. Your head is low. You don't really make eye contact with a bunch of people because I don't want people to ask me what's going on. I don't want to talk to anyone. I isolate myself. I'm like this. No, but he says, you're the one who lifts my head. That's the difference between someone who is wallowing in depression and someone who is confident in who he is in the Lord. They walk high and straight. Their head is up. You know, that word lifter or the one who lifts my head, it became that... I mean, it started from the physical act of being up and feeling confident, but it became a euphemism later on in Israel's history for deliverance. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see, I lifted up so-and-so from the position that they were in or from their struggle. God lifted me up. That's what all of this comes from. It is God who lifted up his head. So the question then really is, Brian, what does this have to do with me? The shield, the promises to David, the glory and all that. What does this have to do with me? Christian, it all boils down to your union with Jesus Christ. Union with Jesus Christ. It is the central and essential truth of the Christian faith. Unless sinners are united to Jesus Christ, they remain unable to receive any spiritual blessing from God. Ephesians 1 said that every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies is ours 
in Christ. In fact, the New Testament uses this often. In Christ, in the Lord, in Christ Jesus, in him. Those things appear more than 200 times in the New Testament. And yet we don't hear it very often from our pulpits and from teaching. The Apostle Paul says this very clearly. I have been crucified with Jesus Christ. Not, Not I have been metaphorically crucified with Jesus Christ. Not I have symbolically, you know, been crucified or like I was crucified. No, he says, I have been, have been crucified with Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Isn't this what we say when we baptize someone? You come to our baptism services, they're amazing. And the pastors all pretty much say essentially the same thing. We quote Romans 6, buried with Christ through baptism. So we're united with Christ in his death. Raised to walk with newness of life. We're united with Christ in his resurrection that the old me is dead and gone. The new me is alive in Jesus Christ. We say this often because it's the truth. We are united with him. You're like, Pastor Brian, what does that mean? How does that actually happen? I'd love to give you an answer to that, but I can't explain it fully. The scriptures don't explain it fully. It just tells us it's a reality. So you know what we call that? A mystery. And sometimes mysteries can be very beautiful. Oftentimes we try to explain every little thing out. But there's something to be said about enjoying some mystery of the faith. And being united to Christ is the mystery of our faith. So what? What does that have to do with anything about this? As the king goes, so goes the kingdom citizens. If David died, then the kingdom would perish. Kingdom citizens would perish. We have a king. His name is King Jesus. He was the one whom the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant was contemplating all along. He is the one who is above all things. He was given the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth shall bow. Every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father in heaven. Now when I say cultivate, trust in the promises of God, I'm not just trying to tell you to say, just believe really hard in the promises that God will get you through something. Because the question for me is, how hard do I have to believe it? How perfectly do I have to trust If I mess up a little bit in that trust and a promise, am I out? No. You trust Christ because of his work on the cross. He he followed all of the conditions of the covenant of God. He satisfied all the legal demands. And then every blessing was given to him. And by being united to Christ, they flow to you. And it's not because you did anything. It's because he did it. That's why we're called joint heirs with Jesus. All we need to do is to be in the family for the will, to, the benefits of the will to come to us. We're beneficiaries of the blessings and the promise of this new covenant. It's not based on how hard you believe in the promises of God. Those are good. You should believe in those promises. You should remember what they are. But remember that they are fulfilled in Christ. And because you're united to Christ by faith, then they flow to you as well. So Christ believed in all the promises perfectly. He fulfilled all the conditions of the law perfectly. So all the blessings of the law came to him. If God would not give you one of his promises, what that means 
is that Christ messed up. In that case, you'd expect all the curses. But Jesus took the curse of our not keeping the promises or not believing the promises, not fulfilling the conditions. He took it upon himself. He died to the cross. He died on the cross. I can just, I can just imagine him on that cross in his mind in Psalm 3 going, how many are my foes all around me? But I can remember, I can see him going through all of these blessings and promises that would flow to you by faith and union with him. Trust Christ. Don't trust in your abilities. Don't trust in your ability to keep a promise and do it right and follow these check boxes. Put that away. Remember Christ. Think about him. That's how you trust the promises of God. You cry out to him in the day of trouble. You trust in his promises, which are rooted in Jesus Christ. And when you get to that point in your discipline growth, you get to the next one, which is rest in the presence of God. Rest in the presence of God. Verse 5. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I, you know, if I were David, I'm on the run. Someone's trying to kill me. I'm not so sure how well I could sleep. I mean, seriously, let's face it. You had to leave under the cover of night. You know there's people that are conspiring against you. There's not just a couple guys that are, you know, well-trained men, but just a couple guys that are on Absalom's side. There's thousands on his side. This is a whole military coup that's going on here. They're hunting him down. And yet he says, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. See, when you cry out to the Lord, you begin to trust in his promises. Trust leads to the blessing of rest. I have to ask this. Why did God set it up that we sleep at all? I mean, everything sleeps, right? I remember from Sesame Street, everybody sleeps. There was a song there. I'm dating myself on that one. Everybody sleeps. I get it. Animals sleep. People sleep. Even if they're nocturnal, it means they're awake at night. They sleep during the day. Everything sleeps. Why did God set it up so that we sleep? I mean, rest I can get, but why sleep? I'm not sure, but I think, I tend to think that sleep is our daily reminder that we have to rest in God. I mean, think about it. You get to the end of the day, and we try to make ourselves as safe as possible. We do our best to live in a safe neighborhood if we can. We put locks on our doors and windows. Some people with security systems. I get it. But at the end of the day, you still have to crawl in bed, and you have to go unconscious for five to eight hours. And I get it, right? Some people are light sleepers, and the light, slightest noise, and they're awake. But the reality is we're unconscious. There's some of you out here that will sleep in and have a tornado rip through your bedroom. You're not waking up. I get it. This is from a guy that's partially deaf in this ear. Sometimes I sleep like this. I can't hear anything that's going on. But it reminds us that we are not in control of our life. God is in control and we have to rest in him. We have to trust in him. What keeps you awake? Anxiety. Anxiety, and you can fill in the blank of whatever causes anxiety. Maybe it's anxiety of a deadline, or maybe it's anxiety of a, maybe a strained relationship, or someone said something to you just before you're ready to go to sleep, and now you're away. You lay down, and your eyes pop open. That's it. I'm up. Because you're struggling with this. 
Anxiety keeps you awake. Faith and trust in God will help you sleep. We think we have to hold on to everything. We think we're in control of our circumstances. We, we, we stay up late or we get up early because there's so much stuff that has to get done and I have to deal with this and I have to deal with this. And God's like, I'm going to make sure you're so tired that you can't even think. Have you ever been there? You can't even think. You try. Just the other day, I was reading through a book, and I read the same three pages multiple times because I have no idea what I just read. I was exhausted. God is saying, Brian, go to sleep. Trust in me. God relieves his fear. He's able to rest, but it didn't come to rest until he trusted in the promises of God in Jesus Christ. And he couldn't even get to that point until he started getting honest with God and crying out to him in the day of trouble. He's able to rest. And he woke up, and maybe there's a little surprise there. Verse 5, I laid down and slept. Hey, I awoke. <laughs> For the Lord sustains me. Resting and trusting in the promises of God, you will have a connection with God's presence like you've never had before. Promises from his word. You'll feel it. You'll feel a sense of calm. You'll be able to sleep, and you'll wake up and say, oh, Lord, thank you for a new day. This was a blessing. He said, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me roundabout. God was relieving his fear. This isn't hyperbole. There were thousands of people that were chasing him down, trying to take the throne away from him. Now, it doesn't mean that David didn't have anything to be afraid of. He had plenty of reasons to be afraid. But because he knew his God and what his God had done to, for him and what his God had promised, he determined that he was not going to allow fear to dictate how he responded. I'm not going to be afraid. Look at this. I got good night's rest. Some of you are desperate for a good night's rest. You're in these troubled circumstances. You're racking your brains over when will it end. You need some sleep. Trust in those promises. Cry out to them. Trust in those promises. Rest in the Lord. You know, I've heard that it's said that courage is just fear that said its prayers. <laughs> Bible calls it faith. Trust in God relieves fear. It doesn't matter how great the opposition, even if the opposition is you. If God is on your side, you're in the majority. And that what Paul says in Romans 8, if God be for us, who could be against us? No one. That's why David could later write in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold, the protection, the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It's like a really sarcastic question. God's my life. Who shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. I love this confidence in God. But remember, he had to go through the disciplines to get there. He had to cry out to the Lord in the day of trouble. He had to trust in the promises and remind himself of those promises. Then he could get some rest and have God take away his fear. When you get through that, the next discipline might be a little odd to you. It's appeal to the justice of God. Appeal to the justice of God. Let's look at verse 7. Just seven. I know there's no Selah in between seven and eight, but we're going to break it up anyway. 
Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. I love that. He says, arise, O Lord. That's actually a war cry in the Old Testament. Arise, O Lord. Uh, how many of you come on Wednesday nights and hear Pastor Scott going through the book of Numbers? Many of you have done that? Yeah, okay. So, you know, that you have the Ark of the Covenant, you have the tabernacle, all that stuff. And then as they're wandering through the wilderness, there were times where God said, just set up camp for a while. We're going to chill right here. But then there are times, okay, okay, it's time to get up. We need to move a little bit. And so whenever it was time to get up and start moving, Moses, you can see this in uh, Numbers chapter 10, I believe it is. Um, Moses says, as they pick everything up, they're ready to march out. The priests are holding the ark with the tent post like they're supposed to. He says, arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before your presence. It was a war cry. This is what David is doing. Arise, O Lord. Psalm 68, verse 1. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. He says, arise, O oh Lord, save me, O oh my God. And then he says something really unusual, doesn't he? How many of you like cocked your head a little bit when he said, you've smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. It's like an odd thing to say. What does that mean? How did you insult people in Victorian England back in those days? You took your little white glove off. Pow, right across the face. Doesn't matter if you're in Victorian England or you're in, in ancient Israel. To slap or hit someone across the face was humiliation. It was to bring them low, to humiliate them, and David is praying that. Arise, O Lord, save me. Smack them on the face. Now, I'm not saying you need to pray. I got a problem with this guy. I need you to punch him in the jaw for me. That's not what he's saying here. He said, I need you to bring this person low. Teach them some humility, O oh Lord. You shattered the teeth of the wicked. What's up with that? How many of you have had some dental issues in your day? Tiny little tooth in there could create so much pain. And you're talking and stuff, and all of a sudden that aggravates you. Maybe you need a root canal, and maybe it just needs to come out, whatever it is. What do you do? You throw your hand on your face, and you don't talk anymore. You get quiet. People come in and talk to you like, just go away. I don't want to talk to you. He's like, say, Lord, rise up, save me, bring them low, and keep their mouth closed. That's what David is saying. Now, what I don't want you to see is David is saying, like, one guy is saying, I have this personal enemy, and God, I want you to annihilate him. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is he's reminding us that the enemies of David are the enemies of God because of who he is. But it's right. And it's good to want to see evil vanquished, is it not? David wants the evil that's being done against him and conversely against, well, not conversely, but and by extension, God to be stopped and punished. And that's a good desire. For us to desire evil to be vanquished is a good thing. Do you not watch the news and want it stopped? Do you not? Do you see what's happening in our society and say, make it stop, God? That's what David is saying. And really, he, David is kind of alluding a bit to Psalm chapter 2. Just flip over to Psalm 2 real quick. Look at, um, 
uh, yeah, look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify him in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Jump down to verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. David is remembering this passage that was being written. It could be an allusion to the the head of the serpent being crushed. But either way, it's okay to say, God, I want the evil to stop. I want the evil in my life to stop. Now, when you pray against evil, one of two things are going to happen. One, evil people get saved. Right? That's the best way for evil to stop is for people to be converted. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness and high places. We know that. And so we ask God, please vanquish this evil. We are asking God, please save them. Because if we save them, the enemies of darkness that are over them are vanquished. They go away. That's what we want, right? We want to see revival in our land. Pray, Lord, vanquish the foe. The true foe is sin, sin nature, and the rulers of darkness and high places. We want that to end. Pray for people to be saved. Don't just look at the news and see the evil around us and some of the attacks that are already starting to come against the church. Don't look at that and say, I just want you to annihilate them. No. I want you to make this evil stop. Save them. If you save them, it will stop. Never remember anyone in early church history that are being fed to the lions ever once wished that God would annihilate the Roman emperor. No, in fact, they were told to pray for him. Pray for them that they could live quiet and easy lives. Pray that they would be saved. That's one thing that can happen. You pray for evil to be vanquished. You're praying that people will be saved. That's wonderful. That's what we want. But there are times when you pray against evil, then God judges evil people and nations. And it's something I just want to caution us on. I see it on social media a lot. There's a bit of this glee among some Christians about America being judged. It's like this kind of a morbid, sick sense of, oh, yeah, they're going to get it. Man, we don't want that. We want people to be saved. We don't want people to be judged. Because here's what happens. I mean, I... America's not ready, God's not ready to judge America. He's already in the process of judging our nation. Just read Romans chapter 1. The things that we see with LGBTQ and other uh, such perversion, read it. It's in Romans 1. That is judgment of God as he gives people over to their passions and their flesh. But here's the thing. When Israel went into captivity of Babylon, were 100% of the Israelis, were they all bad Rebellious against God? Of course not. It was a remnant. Daniel was one of them. Jeremiah had to face that. Um, Ezekiel. There were Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. There were those people that were God-fearing people, but they had to experience the judgment of God that was going on to their nation. So don't pray that God vanquishes evil with some delight in watching people be annihilated, because you'll go along with them. Pray that God saves that way evil would vanquish. That's how you get through this, to this point, though. Because oftentimes we don't even cry out to God, and we're already crying out for people to be judged. Cry out to God your trouble in the day of your t- trouble. Cry out to him. 
trust in those promises, rest in who God is, then you'll be in the proper mindset to say, God, save, vanquish these enemies and watch people be saved around you. Last discipline, confess the salvation of God. Let's look at verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. Many, many might say there's no salvation for David. But David recognizes here in this passage that salvation is not based upon the counsel of the wicked. He's hearkening back to Psalm chapter 1. Not based upon the counsel of the wicked. It's not based on the counsel of his own heart. It's not found in outwardly impressive shows. It's based upon the Lord. That's what he's saying. Salvation is of the Lord. So as you walk through these difficult times, these troubling circumstances, your temptation is to say, I'm not saved. Counsel yourself as you go through these disciplines to say, no, it's not based upon my counsel. Salvation is of the Lord. For us, as with David, salvation is of God. How can we have that confidence? I'll go back to the promises of God again. Achieved through the completed work of Jesus Christ. As with David, there was another king who was surrounded by enemies. King Jesus hung on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. He was surrounded by his enemies, and you can read this in Matthew chapter 27, who basically said there's no hope for him and God. Trouble came for Jesus. The thickest of troubles, enemies all around, crucifixion, nakedness, mocking, death. As I mentioned before, I can imagine Jesus praying in Psalm 3, Oh Lord, how many are my enemies? There might even be, there wasn't even a request for deliverance in the Garden of Gethsemane. If possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours. He knew that deliverance wouldn't come until he died. Because Jesus took the teeth kicking that wicked rebels deserved, you and I. He did that so that the final line of Psalm 3 could be a reality for you and I. Your blessing be upon your people. I could also imagine Jesus on the cross saying, your blessing be upon your people. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he secured every spiritual blessing for his people in him. In Christ, God chose you. That's in verse 4 of Ephesians 1. You are holy. Now, we're still in the process of becoming holy, but he's declared you to be holy. You are blameless. God adopted you. You have redemption in Christ's blood. God forgave you of your trespasses. He lavished grace upon you. Jesus said he will never leave you nor forsake you. He's prepared a place for us that where, where he is, we would be with him both in life and in death. These are the promises secured by Christ that extend to you. Your blessing be upon your people. If you're here in Christ, those blessings are yours. Oh, trust in Christ. Don't trust in your own efforts. Don't trust in your ability to keep this law or that law or to try to maintain this promise to the end that I would be saved. Trust Christ. He fulfilled every duty, demand, and condition that God set upon the world through the giving of his law. He filled, fulfilled it perfectly because we couldn't. And then on that cross, every bit 
of our sinfulness was poured out upon him and he died. And we are united to him in his death. And just as he raised, was raised from the dead, we too are raised. We walk in newness of life. And though my body may die, I may be buried. When he calls, my body is raised. The resurrection is real because I'm united with Jesus Christ in his resurrection. This is the promises of God, the blessing upon every one of you who believe. So I urge you to believe. These are the disciplines. So when difficult circumstances come, and you might be in them right now, if you haven't, hang on, they're coming. We can have peace by remembering the gospel. Remembering who we are in Christ. This is why the martyrs in the Roman Colosseum were willing to be killed. This is why people like Ignatius said, I can't wait to get to the Colosseum. And if the animals don't tear into me willingly, I'll open their mouths and put my head right in because he was secure in the promises that were given to Christ. And he knew that this life would be over and he'd be with Christ face to face. He couldn't wait. That's confidence. That's trust in the promises of God. Yes, they cried out to the Lord in their day of trouble. You need to do that too. Put your trust in those promises. Rest in God, not in your own strength. Proclaim the salvation of God around you. And have peace in those times of trouble. Peace be with you. Let's pray. And then we'll stand for a closing benediction after our last song. Almighty God, most merciful Heavenly Father, in your providence, you at times bring us through some great difficulties. And in, the, in these difficulties, you're cultivating, you're cultivating disciplines in us. You're igniting our faith. You're making us more like Jesus Christ. But there are times, Lord, where it seems nigh unbearable. Just can't do it anymore. Help us to remember the disciplines that David exercised here in this passage. Remind us to cry out to you. Remind us of the promises that are us because they were given to Christ for what he has done. Remind us to rest in you. Remind us to ask for the salvation of our enemies around us. Remind us, O oh Lord, to declare your glorious salvation over our lives in Christ Jesus. I pray for those who are going through those such agonizing moments, even now, that you would grant them peace. And we appeal to the Prince of Peace, in whose name we pray. Amen.